Hey there, welcome to another edition of What Barry's Talking About from Barry 360. I'm Dan Blakely. On this week's program, May 31st, marked the 37th anniversary of the tornado that ravaged central Barry. A lot has changed in terms of forecasting such storms, but more still needs to be done. We get the story behind the YMCA's decision to build a new Barry facility in the parking lot of the Sadlin Arena. Not a lot of people happy about it, but it may be the best option for a number of reasons. If you've been humming and hawing about an electric vehicle this weekend, offers an opportunity to test drive one and ask a lot of questions without any pressure to buy. There's a new place for woodworkers to play in Barrie, and what's it like being the in-park announcer for the Barrie Baycats? But first, things that go bump on your daily drive. CAA has released its annual list of worst roads in Ontario. One in our region made the top 10 for the province, four in Barrie are on the top five for the central region. We're joined now by CAA's Teresa DeFelice. 20th year for this survey, Teresa. I suspect the number of drivers taking part each year is getting bigger and bigger. Absolutely. We have thousands upon thousands of voters who uh, take to the campaign across Ontario each year. And, um, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to have your voice heard. And it's not just drivers anymore. It's also cyclists and pedestrians who are chiming in. Correct. We see a lot of the roads that get voted uh, to the top 10 worst roads list in Ontario and even to the regional list that we uh, compile. Um, while, you know, driving is predominant in terms of road surface and, and potholes, uh, we see a lot of lack of cycling infrastructure and lack of sidewalk infrastructure as a reason why people are taking to the campaign. All right, so worst roads this year, the worst one, uh, number one, Barton Street uh, in Hamilton, and this is the second year in the number one spot? That's correct. It's two years in a row for Barton Street East. So what's going on there? Do people get an opportunity to say what exactly they don't like about the the street? Well, Barton Street East is an interesting one. It's been climbing through the list for the past number of years, uh, you know, making its way slowly to the top. And each year that we saw it climb, it got progressively worse. And the majority is, you know, major potholes, what we call alligator cracking, where it looks like, a, you know, the back of an alligator and trying to navigate down that roadway, um, just severe pavement um, maintenance needed it, it, it's in bad, bad state of repair. Let's come closer to my area now, central region, where uh, a, a road in Orillia tops out on the list this year and also made the main list for Ontario. Yes, Lassley Street in Aurelia uh, made it to the top 10. It has been on the regional list, um, but it's the first time that it's uh, appearing on the top 10 for all of Ontario. Um, so, you know, there, there's obviously some issues happening there with um, with sort of the, the bad course pavement surface is mostly what we hear about uh, that particular street. And the other thing that we're excited to, to share is that in May 2023, City Council approved $878,000 to carry out some reconstruction work on Lackley and Tecumseh. So things are happening there. Let's come into Barrie now, where the rest of the top five for Central Region reside, uh, Essa, Tiffin, Duckworth, and Huronia Road. We've talked with the city before when we get around to these surveys every year. They let us know that they're usually aware of this and they've got uh, plans in the works, but I I suspect uh, your survey helps giddy up that a little bit. One of the successes of the CA Worst Roads campaign is that uh, again, some of these roads are not unknown to the officials in the municipality, but where they fall in terms of what their plans are, 
Um, sometimes this list helps actually move some projects along and ahead of some other projects. It really helps the cities prioritize because uh, they understand better where their constituents, where their residents are having major pain points in, in the roadways that they use most often. Well, and the good news here is that uh, three of those streets, uh, Duckworth, Essa, and Tiffin, have already begun some uh, reconstruction work or are are getting ready for some to begin. And Huronia Road, uh, the plans are in the works. So we're ahead of the game there, which is nice. Exactly. I think, you know, Barry's done some good work in trying to uh, address roads that have appeared and, and get them fixed and hopefully see them off the list. Uh, Bell Farm Road is another one that was on the list for many years of central region, our central region list. Um, and that one was a $13.8 million project that began in uh, April 2021. I believe all of the work has been completed. It's fully open to the public as of the fall of last year. Uh, and so, again, this is a, a success story in that, you know, politicians, the officials are hearing what their residents have to say and fixing the roads, as well as, you know, CA then our government relations team reaches out to municipalities to highlight what's coming out of the Worst Roads campaign each year. I don't know whether you can answer this question or not. We get a lot of comments on our social media when we talk about roads that are being repaired or, or are in disrepair, and then we get to the road work begins, and sometimes it takes an awfully long time. Weather can be a factor in that. I know in Barrie, sometimes it's the ground underneath that uh, causes issues. But there seems to be a, a, a long-running uh, concern about how long it takes just to resurface a roadway and we just went through a a major resurfacing uh, on one of the streets here that uh, took the better part of a month and there are some people who seem to indicate that uh, they know a bit about the the paving industry and they say it really shouldn't be taking as long as it does to get this work done. Yeah I mean I think that um, we've heard that as well it's like why does it take so long and there's a number of factors like you said weather can impact that and delay some of the road work that needs to be done. Um, you know, it depends on if they find something, uh, you know, how big the fix is, if it includes, you know, sewers and water mains. But even on, on simple road reconstruction projects, like sometimes if you identify an issue, um, you know, you have to sort of do your due diligence before uh, they can continue on with it. But, you know, we do a, a survey of our members each year ahead of our launching our CA annual worst roads campaign. And, and, you know, there is a tolerance. People do have a bit of tolerance to say, well, put up with a bit of construction as long as it means the roads are being fixed. But I would also say there's a bit of a shelf life to that and that when it takes too long, then the frustrations kick in. And a majority of people say they'd like road work to be done faster and they'd like it to last longer. I don't know whether that's ever going to happen. Well, I mean, there's a lot of advancements being made in uh, materials used, uh, you know, to fix roads, and there's lots of different things that have uh, been sort of tried and over the years. I think one of the challenges that municipal- municipalities have is that they have limited budgets. And so, you know, you tend to, to put out a, a tender for a contract to fix a roadway, and you end up, you know, giving it usually to the lowest bid. But the lowest bid isn't always the one that might give you some of that longevity or, you know, depending if there's different materials that could be used that, that cost more. And, and that really is a challenge. And it's something, too, that we've mentioned to senior levels of government when we advocate to have them dedicate more funding available to municipalities uh, to fix roadways. But I think one of the things that the conversation needs to start moving to is do we spend a little more in order to get a little bit more lifespan. 
Teresa, thanks so much for your insight and uh, your Worst Roads campaign. We'll look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. Won't take the bump out of those worst roads, but you may cut costs with an electric vehicle if you've been thinking about one but still have too many questions. The Georgian College Auto Show is where you want to be this weekend. Barry 360's MJ caught up with Director of Marketing Grace Stein. We're trying to focus on relieving range anxiety and educating the consumer on electric vehicles. Um, So we're going to have panels and discussions and things like that. We're also going to have test drives from plug and drive. So you're going to have the opportunity to test drive any of your favorite electric vehicles and really get up close and ask all the questions you have about those electric vehicles. Kids 12 and under are free. So we're going to have a full kid zone, bouncy castles, obstacle courses. The Yamaha mini bikes are coming back. And so is Red Barn Dog Show this year. Um, and then as well, Porsche is bringing back, FAF is bringing back the uh, Porsche drift track, but it's actually going to be an autocross track this year. And it's actually going to be with an electric tie can. Going back to like test driving an electric vehicle because I can't even imagine driving one. <laughs> so this is a really good opportunity if people have been on the fence about getting one or they do, really don't know what they're getting. Yeah, um, absolutely. What, what kind of vehicles are there going to be? Is it like, is it going to be a Tesla? Is it going to be Hyundai? <laughs> so most of them are going to be manufacturers like Ford, Toyota, GM. Like we don't exactly know what plug-in drive is bringing specifically, but they'll bring a couple of vehicles from the fleet um, and our OEMs, our manufacturers, have an opportunity to bring their vehicles as well, or your conventional manufacturers that you really get to get up close with. And because we're a non-selling show, it really relieves the stress of like the pressurized selling environment. Nobody's trying to sell anything to you. You can just come in, ask all the questions you want, and get like true, honest answers, um, and get right up close and take it. We're actually um, letting the test drives go off campus, so it's going to be a pretty decent-sized test drive. Obviously, kids cannot drive the cars because right. they don't have licenses. Is there anything for underage kids, like you said, like the Yamaha, like those yeah. bikes? And- yeah, so um, kids can obviously ride in the test drive, but I know that's not as exciting. But um, our FAF drift track this year, kids can ride in the Taycan with a professional driver who will take them around the autocross track. Yamaha mini bikes is coming again, so I believe it's kids 6 to 12. Um, they provide you with the full suit, the full gear and everything, and you get to do laps around our field. And then same with our obstacle course and our bouncy castle. So we're bringing pretty big ones this year, so we're super excited about those. Anything particular you're really excited to see? Um, I'm just excited to see it all come together because usually the students at our program participate in the auto show every single year. Um, but because of COVID, none of our directors have participated in a show before. So I'm just excited to see it all come together, see all the students come together and see the kind of finished product and see all the consumers come and hang out and visit. Where and when is this going to be taking place? Um, so it'll be on the Georgian College Barry campus at 1 Georgian Drive from June 2nd, this Friday, to this Sunday, June 4th. And tickets are $10 at the door. And like I said, kids and under are free and parking is free. The YMCA's decision to build a new facility in the north end of the parking lot at Sadlin Arena has met with a lot of criticism. It's not central. It's too close to the Innisville Y to start. Barry 360's Ian McLennan tracked down Jill Tetman, president and CEO of YMCA Simcoe Muskoka, to get the rationale for the decision. Why this location? What What's attractive about it? 
Well, there, there are many things attractive about it. We spent uh, quite a while with some experts in the community looking at a number of different options. I think they, the community knows that we were looking at downtown Barrie. What this site offers us is space. It offers, it offers us three acres, and when we looked in and around the downtown, we were getting uh, just you know under an acre to build, and it just wasn't going to meet our vision of what we wanted in our new YMCA. Uh, I think um, you know looking at H Block, which we uh, walked away from a year ago because of cost escalation, it really was about uh, a space that was too small for us and the ability to have have to park and build underground parking or above ground parking, which became very costly. So three acres is what we were looking for. And uh, the city uh, very graciously offered us to look at that space to see if it would meet our needs. So it's a growing population on the south end. Um, and uh, we believe that as the population grows, that uh, we will meet some great needs in that, in that area. It works for our partners. It works for uh, our partnership with Youth Haven, and uh, it gives us the space to build the youth transitional housing, which was a really important part of our vision. It works with our partnership with uh, the regional um, Royal Victoria Regional Health Centre and looking at our cardiac and cancer rehab programs and potentially even uh, broadening some of that uh, programming. And it, uh, it works with um, all of our other programs and services that just fit better on that larger site. I know downtown would have been ideal. You've, you had said that uh, before. And it's, it's a good news announcement. For those that do say, though, you know, it, it feels like it's out in the boonies or it's too close to the Innisfil. Why? How would you respond? Well, we actually did a lot of research on that. We uh, looked at... You know, consecutive circular rings around sort of a kilometer and five kilometers and ten kilometers. We looked at market share. We did a, a very extensive market share analysis of all of the sites that we were looking at, at least our top three sites that we were looking at. And uh, we believe that there's not a lot of overlap, particularly with the NSOI. We believe there is a, a very uh, big population and growing population in the south end, and our research told us that um, our membership would be uh, strongest, actually, in that location compared to a couple of other locations that we have been looking at. Is this city-owned property? It is. And so you have, do you, you have to negotiate with the city? Can you, are you able to put a cost, then, on uh, what this build will be based on, you know, the H-block being far too expensive? Uh, yeah, we are we are looking at a lease from the city, and so we will not be purchasing the land. We will be leasing the land for a very long long term lease. Uh, we are looking at um, you know a, sort of a cap of sixty five million of this build, uh, and you know a lot of that has the, the price was brought down quite substantially because of the cost of parking with them. The three acres were allowed, or we're, we have space for 130 to 150 surface uh, parking spaces, which is uh, much less um, cost than uh, going up or going down. So uh, we have saved a lot of money from both a purchase of land and parking to be able to bring our, our cost in at around uh, $60, $65 million for the, for the cost, for the build. 
Is an example then that the the Y, yes, it's a great place to go, you know, for fitness, for, um, you know, the, the aquatics and, and what have you. But you touch on Youth Haven, you touch on uh, the RVH, that it's um, it, it's all about community. This is, it's, you know, it, it, it's bigger than just uh, exercise. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a center of community. Um, it is. Uh, it is not a fitness center. Um, it is. It's a. It's a larger center of community, and and we we do hope that uh, our and we we attract a, a number of you know families, young families that are looking for a place to go, um, adults, youth, uh, seniors that are looking for a place to connect, a place, a place to feel like they belong. Uh, we know that that is something that we hear all the time when people talk about the YMCA. It's not just a gym or it's not just a place to go and work out. It's a place to connect, connect with people and make new friends and, and meet up with uh, with friends. So it really is that kind of a social connection and community center. And in terms of timeline for build, uh, it was a couple of years ago, the province uh, provided a grant of uh, just over $29 million, I believe, with a yes. deadline 2027 to use that up. So what, what are timelines for, you know, shovel on the ground and, and a build here? So now that we have announced that this is our preferred site, we're going to be doing uh, the due diligence on the land uh, right away. And so we need to do some soil testing. We need to look at some environmental conditions and archaeological conditions. So we'll be doing that work and starting that work right away. And we anticipate that we will have shovel in the ground by the fall of 2024, so next fall. So we're giving ourselves about a year, year and a half for all of the due diligence and some of the site plan pieces that we have to work through, which takes a long time. It's a tight timeline. Uh, we then would give ourselves a two and a half, two and a half years to build, and the uh, the building needs to be substantially completed for our government grant by the end of March of 2027. What Barry's talking about is a weekly podcast featuring the best Barry has to offer and more. We've covered a lot of ground since we began last summer, learned about a local effort to save the monarch butterfly, met up-and-coming country artist Graham Scott Fleming of Elmvale, and heard how a Barry police officer and a mental health crisis worker from RVH are changing the way mental health-related calls are handled. You can get caught up and make it easy to keep up in the future by subscribing to What Barry's Talking About through any streaming service. Still to come on what Barry's talking about, behind the scenes at a Barry Baycats game and the anniversary of the 1985 Barry tornado was this week. What have we learned and what do we still have to learn? Now this. Our community rocks. It's a well-known fact blood transfusion saves lives. It's also a well-known fact that the world relies on voluntary unpaid donations to fill the need for blood. The need for blood never ends. Canadian Blood Services in Barrie is calling on you to help save a life. Please consider donating today. Appointments are mandatory and must be booked in advance. Book today at blood.ca through the Give Blood app or by calling one 2 donate Our community rocks on Barrie's Rock Station. Rock 95. This is what Barry's talking about from Barry360. I'm Dan Blakely. Few of us get to do a job we really, really love. Rob Daniels is lucky. He has two. He's the midday personality on 107.5 Cool FM and also the in-park announcer for the Barry Baycats. Not as easy as it may sound, but our Will Conkin is hearing it is like a dream come true. What's it mean to be the voice that people hear when they come to a game? It means the world. I can't tell you how thankful I am to to work this job. 
I'm incredibly grateful. I remember being a kid, like nine years old at, well, the Rogers Center where the Blue Jays play. And I would sit there in the stands with my dad and I used to imitate the public address announcer at the Dome, the Rogers Center, however you would like to call it these days. And it was a dream. So a dream come true to just be able to do this for meaningful baseball, like in the Intercounty Baseball League is, uh, is a dream come true. And uh, to work with Josh Matlow, the general manager, him and I have had uh, an upbringing together, which is kind of neat. Our story together, we played competitive baseball back in the day about 20-ish years ago. And then uh, now we're both at a baseball stadium uh, working uh, different purposes at the the ball field. He's uh, he's a coach, the field manager, and I'm uh, the public address announcer. But certainly... Uh, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not uh, grateful to do that job. Yeah, do you kind of feel like a responsibility to the fans to provide like a specific aspect to the game when they when they're there? Yeah, just to be upbeat for them, like to uh, make sure that when they're coming there, they're uh, in the know of. 50-50 tickets, let's say, that are on sale or uh, all the lineups to have, uh, you know, who's coming up to the plate. And I think... Uh, a lot of those fans care and they they get hyped up when when they hear their home their home uh, squad getting announced and uh, I just try and make it uh, one announcement better than the next so I'm yeah you really right. set the tone yeah that's what I try to do and uh, I love it I really do maybe kind of run through yeah. a game day what is a your schedule day? for you so a game day normally consists of like showing up probably about 35 to 40 minutes before first pitch and you get there and you you sort of uh, collect the lineups from both uh, teams, the opposing team and the home team. And you you jot the names down because I have to uh, yeah do that paperwork, make sure I know uh, who uh, what position they're playing the uh, the number on the back of their jersey their their full names and try and go through pronunciations as well those are not always easy especially when the away team comes to town and uh so make sure i have that down and uh figure out who the umpires are because they get a shout out as well at the beginning of the game of uh, in terms of who's handling uh, f- uh home plate in the bases and then i also go through any special announcements that need to be made in terms of the ceremonial first pitch who's handling that and who is uh, singing the anthem or if it's just an anthem being played our Ca- our Canadian national anthem of course and so uh, once I get all that jotted down and figured out I I look over the script and kind of make sure I know where I'm going uh, at each point throughout the night and I also take a look at the sponsorships which are the same throughout the season but I, I look through them they're inning sponsors and uh, yeah, for the most part, do that. Grab my coffee, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Does it all um, yeah. feel like a job, or do you still just find enjoyment throughout that process? Because that's a lot of juggling to do. It is. It is a lot of juggling, but it's deep, meaningful purpose to me. Like this is something I worked on so uh, incredibly uh, much over over the years. Like I've made demos for it. I've made. Um, I've been saddened in the past because we don't have a lot of teams like they do in the United States where you could do this on every corner in the U.S. with, with you know minor league teams, major league teams. We have only one major league baseball team, but everywhere in the States you got teams that are uh, you know, just as good as the Baycats and they're all over the place on every block and you could and, and these jobs are few and far between in Canada. So I've and home is, you know, 
uh, Ontario. So I'm just uh, grateful that I just kept working as hard as I could to try and get this this one job that exists for the for the Barrie area and uh, and and happy for it. It's early, but uh, yeah. the Big Cats are two and three on the season. Uh, yeah. What have you liked so far from the club or any players that have stood out for you? Well, I like this guy Evan Souls, who's a, a great pitcher, and um, I'll go with uh, my daughter's two favorite because she has. Uh, uh, she has two favorites on the Bay Cat. She's nine years old, Madison. Shout out to, to Madison. And uh, she's funny because when she goes to the ballpark and watches the game, she calls them the sexy teenager boys. <laughs> the Bay Cats. Yeah. So uh, they are uh, number 13, Marcel Lacasse, who she loves. And uh, she also happens to love Ryan Rio, the designated hitter slash first baseman. And uh, they are playing, uh, you know, those are fan favorites, I would say. And I'd say those two are my favorite, too. The next home game is Thursday against the Guelph Royals. Hopefully they can get the win. Uh, Let's hope, yeah. And you can get tickets for that at BarryBayCats.com. What Barry's talking about on the road again at Framework Studio on Saunders Road in Barry, and this is new, this is great, this is right up my alley, but I'm going to let you explain, Sean Livingston, exactly what's going on here. Yeah, awesome, thank you. This is new to Barry. We're a woodworking studio with an emphasis on memberships and woodworking classes for the public. Um, so you, anyone can become a member to our shop. They gain full access to all of the machines and tools and workbenches in the studio to come in, build whatever they want. We try to encourage other business people who are maybe outgrowing the space they're in or downsizing from their current shop to come in and make money at their craft. So we're here to help those people, give them the little nudge they need to to grow their business. Is there anything you don't have in here? I'm looking around. There's saws and sanders and cutters and clamps, and you can find just about anything you need here. Just about everything you need for furniture or cabinetry can be found here. What was the genesis of this? What went off in your head that said, we need to do this? Just a lack of spaces like this in the Barrie area, or even in the southern Ontario area, with skilled trades dwindling the way they are, there is a real need for new people to be introduced to the craft. It was a great opportunity for us to step in and offer our shop for people to come in, try out woodworking through our classes, and for people who are already in the craft to come in and expand their knowledge and experience in the craft and grow their careers and try to help fill the void that there is in the trades. Tell me about the classes, because this is going to be of interest to a lot of people who, who think they can do it, but they don't have the tools and they don't have the expertise. Absolutely. So we have a whole bunch of very beginner-friendly classes available on our website. We've had people come in with zero woodworking experience. They've never touched a chisel or a sander in their lives. And they've, and they've walked out with beautiful pieces of woodworking. Um, picture frames and outdoor planters and charcuterie boards. Uh, We try to offer a wide variety of different things for people to make, and we take them step-by-step through the entire process from rough lumber to the finished product. So those are small projects, but Mm -hmm. uh, I see a big garage door, so people could get involved in bigger things too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, We have a member who builds cedar strip canoes. 
Really? So he can bring his canoe in here and work on it and take it home with him or store it here until he comes in the next day to continue working on it. Um, we, if people have, uh, if people are building large dining tables, let's say, there's ample space in here for them to work on it throughout the building process and then enough space for them to get it out the door as well at the end. And now tell us about the membership situation. How does that work? Yeah, so people can sign up to become members. Uh, this is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week facility. So when people book time after becoming members, they book time uh, to come into the shop. Mm -hmm. And they'll get a one-time-use PIN code sent to their phone that unlocks the door. So they can come in. Uh, the whole place is video surveillance. Um, everyone's been signed off on safety machines or safety protocols on the machine. How long have you been here now? This is our third month here. And it's been busy? It's been busier by the day, for sure, yes. So, as you said, there was a lot of pent-up demand for this. There was a lot of need for it. There is, absolutely. And it's, and it's just a matter of getting the word out there now, letting people know that we're here and our doors are open for new members and for members and non-members alike for the courses as well. People want more information? Website? Phone number? Yes, they can go to frameworkstudios.ca. We have a list of all of our courses and our memberships on there, everything we're about. Uh, they can reach out to us at 647-818-7210. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dan. May 31st, 1985, 37 years ago, a brief but devastating F4 tornado barged through Central Barrie. Its wind topped at 300 kilometers an hour. Eight people in the city were among the 12 people killed. $100 million damage was done. 800 people were left homeless. What have we learned since? Are we better prepared for another tornado? Here again is our Ian McLennan with David Sills of the Northern Tornadoes Project at Western University. It's interesting, the tornado that uh, struck Barry May 31st, 1985, um, it, it was, I don't know if it was a wake-up call for the province, but the city of Barry began uh, a lot more coordination with emergency preparedness. It almost was a, was, a, was a trigger to start something like this. Made a big impact, not just in Ontario and in Barry, but across the country as far as how can we better forecast these storms. And in fact, with that storm, uh, a new Doppler radar had just been installed at uh, Environment Canada, and it covered that. So it was it was the first time that a tornado had been sampled by uh, a Doppler radar in Canada. So we, we, we learned quite a bit from that experience. And if memory serves, there was a weather watch for a severe thunderstorm watch um, for that area, but it dragged on through most of the day, and there was talk that people just became complacent because nothing was happening. If a watch is issued and it's not upgraded to a warning, then it's possible that people... Stop listening. So that's something we find is that if there's a watch issued, then they can, it's usually kind of a long um, approach to the event where it's, the target time is six hours before the event. So that's a long time for people to, uh, to wonder if it's going to hit them. Whereas with a, a warning, uh, that's, you know, something is, is happening and it will occur imminently in your area. And at that point, people really need to, to really take action when the warning is issued. Are we better prepared in terms of forecasting tornadoes, you know, from 1985 to, uh, to 2023, and, you know, including that tornado that struck Barry just a few years ago? Sure. We have so much better data now. In fact, there's uh, new radars that have been installed across the country that are capable of earlier detection of tornadic storms. That's one of the reasons they were upgraded. Uh, but there's more work that's needed 
uh, on radar tools for the forecasters that issue the warnings to make the most of those capabilities. Uh, so there's still work to do in order to, to get those tornado warnings out and out earlier. I know there was chatter um, after the tornado in 2021 in Barrie that the warning wasn't issued fast enough, the tornado struck, then the warning was issued. How much uh, slack do we give meteorologists, though, in terms of how challenging it is to forecast tornadic storms? Oh, it is very challenging. It's one of the most challenging things a forecaster will face, and that's a lot of it is because the, it, it's fairly rare. Some forecasters will go through their entire career without ever having issued a warning for a significant tornado. So uh, the main thing is, is you know, training and simulations and making sure that the forecasters get some confidence with these kinds of rare events before they actually happen on their shift. And uh, in 2021, um, there was still chatter whether that warning was issued fast enough. Was there any determination or can you even, you know, pinpoint, you know, you know, timelines? Sure. Yeah, that warning was issued a bit late as far as the, the damage that was caused, that, that the people were walking out of their homes after the damage had happened. And then they got the warning on their phone. So this is this is what we want to improve. Uh, it's, it's a question of lead time. Uh, how quickly can the forecasters respond once they see uh, the, the features on radar that look like it could be a tornadic storm. And uh, obviously they have to act very quickly because uh, the, the time from uh, seeing a feature on radar to the tornado actually causing damage is sometimes only minutes. So it is, that is really one of the big challenges with uh, tornado warnings is just the short amount of time that forecasters have to act. And so we need, we need better tools, better training in order for those forecasters to have the confidence to, to really uh, push that button uh, when they see the first sign of something that looks like it could be tornadic. Now, 1985, um, there were, you know, the emergency preparedness, um, there were, obviously the focus was, uh, you know, to galvanize and be better prepared. 2021, there was talk about hurricane straps, particular roofing, you know, to protect infrastructure. Did anything come about in Barrie or within the construction industry? Are, is your organization still pushing for that? Uh, yeah, I mean, Western Engineering has been pushing for hurricane straps. Uh, for, for I think about a decade now uh, and trying to get traction. And certainly the Barry case, um, the Barry event made a good case for, for hurricane straps. And it was really great to see uh, Barry's City Hall taking that on and, and making recommendations for changes to the building code. As far as I'm aware, hurricane straps are still voluntary across the country and it's up to uh, builders whether they want to use them. But they're very inexpensive. Uh, as far as you know, comparing it to the total cost of the home, uh, there are some builders that have done it voluntarily and are building you know, tornado-resilient subdivisions. So that's great to see. And, uh, but the, the end objective would be to get that right in the building code so it's done everywhere where tornadoes happen. And in Ontario, is that a provincial government responsibility to dictate that or implement that, I guess? Yes. That's, uh, there's, there's a national building code. That's, it's, it's kind of a master code. That's a suggestion to all the provinces, but it's up to the provinces to enact their own provincial building codes, and that's where the rubber hits the road. And uh, just uh, for layman terms, if people aren't familiar, we're talking hurricane straps. What, what are they designed to do? Sure. It, it, they're basically small pieces of metal that are designed to hold the roof onto the walls. And, uh, you know, in Canada, we build, we, we've built for decades and decades homes that can withstand a lot of snow on the roof. But uh, there hasn't been much in the way uh, in the building code to, to prevent roofs from coming off. 
So if you have a poorly connected uh, roof, uh, as, far, as far as your roof-to-wall connection, then that roof can come off, and then all of your contents of your home are at risk uh, of being destroyed. So, you know, keeping that roof on is, uh, is really important. And, uh, you know, we can do that with these hurricane straps, keep the roof on for tornadoes that are up to EF2 strength, basically. And that is about 90% of tornadoes in Canada. So, really, we can attack this problem with hurricane straps and, and have much of the problem solved. So we're, we're, that's, that's one of the reasons we're really pushing for that solution across Canada. Coming down to the responsibility of the individual themselves in terms of when they hear a severe thunderstorm watch or warning, where is the responsibility on the person living at home or in their apartment? Uh, you know, they, what, what, should, what should they do? You know, what are the expectations there? There are certain things you can do that will certainly help your home survive the, uh, a tornado. Uh, when a tornado watch is issued, meaning the ingredients are there, it, it may or may not happen, but it's possible. Uh, things you can do are close your garage door, uh, close your windows, make your building envelope, like seal that envelope so wind is not getting into your home, and remove things that could become missiles and cause damage to either your house or someone else's house. And then when that warning is issued, uh, make sure to get get yourself out of the way of that tornado. So don't be standing there taking video like you see a lot on uh, social media. Uh, get away from windows and doors and out of the way of any debris. Try to get into a basement or an interior part of your house, and that's the safest place you can be. And finally, is there a tornado alley in uh, southern Ontario? Because I've heard it said that Barrie is in a so-called tornado alley. Yeah, the Great Lakes have a big influence on where thunderstorms develop and therefore tornadoes in, in southern Ontario. And so we end up with this alley, you could call it, that basically rides along the 401 and to the north of it, maybe 100 kilometers to the north of it. So, you know, Windsor to Sarnia and then uh, just north of uh, Toronto to Barrie, that area, and extending into eastern Ontario. So, yeah, we definitely see that uh, Barrie is right in that that alley and uh, certainly there's been a, been a number of big events big tornado events in the in the Barry area and, and that certainly is expected to continue and that's our program for this week thanks to ian mj and will for their input to matt ladder for his editing magic and to you for listening if you like what you've heard please subscribe to what barry's talking about rate it review it you can also keep up with what barry's talking about on facebook and twitter at barry 360 on our website barry 360.com and with our daily kickstart podcast i'm dan blakely hope you'll join us again next week